At every ARBA convention, we're greeted by a banner that reads, For five days, you don't have to explain to anyone why you raise rabbits. Our hobby sometimes raises eyebrows. You show what? But once you step inside, you'll discover a world full of passionate, interesting people all working toward the ultimate goal, best in show. What can I do for you? Well, I'm looking for a white rabbit. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. If I were looking for a white rabbit, I'd ask the Mad Hatter. Okay, rabbit, you forced me to use force. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice, tumbling down the rabbit hole. All right, welcome back to Best in Show. That is the podcast dedicated to showing rabbits and cavies and maybe some other things down the road. Um, and I'm, of course, joined each and every episode with my beautiful, brilliant co-host, Bryony Smith. How are you, Bryony? I'm doing well. Thanks for, for joining us. Um, what's been going on in the show world, Alan? Well, unfortunately, still not a whole lot, but I have judged a couple shows and it's really good to, to kind of to fly again. Well, well, flying is not so much fun with COVID going on, but um, it's good to, to get back in the groove of things and, and to see friends and, and see rabbits. And, you know, we talked about this before about people spending time at home you know, focusing on their on their projects and their rabbits, maybe where in the past they didn't have all this time. And I think the quality of rabbits is improving. Or maybe it's just that I haven't been to a show in a long time. So I think everything looks great. But what, what's your experience? Um, yeah, it's it's been good to go to some shows to see people again, and to look forward to um, spring and getting some new litters. And we'll we'll talk about this um, here in a bit with our guests coming up. I always forget about that springtime thing, you know, in California, as our special guest is today too, living in California, we don't have like that really strict change of seasons. It's either super cold, which cold to me is like 60, um, or mega hot, which is like 110, which is something that we really do deal with. So I always forget that springtime means, you know, nest boxes full and and the rebirth of life. I, I always forget about that. It's because we have green grass right now. So it's almost like our springtime. Absolutely. So. And that's that's the title of today's episode, Breeding Like Rabbits. They're, of course, a, a beloved fertility symbol and a harbinger of spring. All right. So let's roll into this time in, and it's your turn this time. It is. I chose um, the spring or spring 1995, the March-April issue of the Domestic Rabbits. Actually, there's kind of a funny story behind this. Um, when I learned I was taking over as the chair of the Standards Committee, kind of coincided with my mom wanting to get rid of some of my old stuff. So she told me to take all your boxes of rabbit magazines. So I started to go through them to organize them. And I thought, hey, I'll, I'll go through and, you know, read old standards committee reports, really get as prepared as I can for this job. We call that geeking out. Uh, yeah, it was it was a major geek fest, like a weekend geek fest in my basement. Um, so I started, I posted on Facebook that I was doing this and that I would put little funny things um, on that Facebook post. And I got a message from a friend, Judge Jamie Green, who said, do you have that slime green DR? And I said, yes, I just flipped through it. It's this hilarious cover. Um, it, it is, it's neon slime green. There are two Angoras eating some slime green leaves out of a bowl. It's so funny. Apparently the story behind this is um, the publisher asked Oren Reynolds, um, who was then the editor, 
hey, let's do a green cover. It's spring. And he had no idea it was going to be this shade of green. It's like, it's neon. It's oh my luminous. God. It's hilarious. So I had to pull this one out and then dig into it. That was um, before my time in Rabbit. So I actually don't know this cover. I have to see a copy of it. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Um, we'll, we'll show it to everyone. It's, it's fantastic. It's legendary. Um, <laughs> so in the world this time, um, some world events, uh, you brought up something about royalty. I'm also a big, you know, European royalty history uh, geek. Um, do you watch The Crown? Yes. Oh my God, Brianie. I'm an addict. Bad. Okay. That's another topic, but go ahead. <laughs> so March 5th of 1995 was when the graves of Tsar Nicholas II and his family were found in St. Petersburg after um, the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. So that was that was a big event in world history because for, you know, 80 years, nobody knew where they were. Um, March 27th of that year, Forrest Gump won the Academy Award for Best Picture. One of really my old. favorite movies. Oh my gosh. Um, that April, another thing I really love, um, UCLA defeated the University of Arkansas, the Razorbacks, my my second team. I lived in Fayetteville for a while um, in the NCAA Men's Basketball Championship. Um, digging into the domestic rabbits, uh, Glenn Carr's report talks about um, some of the ARBA's cooping. It mentions that at the time, we owned 7,200 rabbit and 300 KB cages, that some of these were starting to need some repairs. They were going through and powder coating some of the cages. And they'd also ordered some extra equipment um, to, in preparation for the convention in Kentucky that year. Um, so they would have, uh, belonging to the association, approximately 8,000 rabbit cages and 600 KV cages. Do you know how many uh, coops we have today? I <laughs> I feel like that as someone that uh, co-chaired the last convention, I should know this, but I, actually, I don't. But I, I do know that it's many more than that. And it's the the cooping is so sophisticated these days. The what what Bob Price and his committee have done. I mean that that job is a labor of love, and he is amazing. And donating his own property, for example, to house a permanent building to hold hold those coops, unbelievable. Um, he is he is definitely one of our heroes. But I don't know how many um, there are. So maybe we should ask our audience, you know, pop quiz, what, or as Dr. Scott Williamson might say, um, the quest for today, what, uh, how many coops does the Airbnb currently have when it comes to convention coops and equipment? I'm sure somebody knows and will be happy to tell us. Somebody, somebody out there geeks out on show equipment. <laughs> Let's face it. Yeah. Somebody's been paying attention. I know that they have. Um, also in this edition, um, Besides, there were some judges and registrars listed. Unfortunately, none of the judges listed are still active today. Um, new licenses are granted to Alicia Maxwell from Michigan and David Summers from Florida. Alicia required or retired a couple of years ago. Um, also in each issue is a list of newly chartered clubs. And I found this really interesting. There was a club chartered in Bermuda, the Bermuda All-Breed Rabbit Club. I, rem I, I remember it, hearing stories about that, but I didn't know much about it. Do you know anything about them? I really don't. I think it was fairly short-lived. Um, but I know some of the District 6 breeders, like from the Carolinas, obviously geographically the closest, um, kind of assisted with that. But I thought that was really interesting. Um, I'd like to know what happened to that. Um, next to that, the Standards Committee report um, talks about how the 1996 to 2000 standard of perfection would be going to print soon. Um, I remember this one. Actually, this is a standard I took my registrar and judges tests under. There was a big change in this standard um, for disqualifications. I don't know if you remember, we used to have eliminations and disqualifications. 
these were two different things. Um, eliminations were things that were typically temporary in nature. So you might have a rabbit that was eliminated for having no tattoo in the ear or, you know, having a toenail that was broken off too short or, you know, having ear mites. It was something that was temporary um, where a disqualification was something that was permanent. So I for had no example, idea. Yeah, a rabbit would be, you know, missing a toe or have a big white spot. Um, it was something that, that couldn't be changed. That was a disqualification. So I kind of decided it would be easier to take my test without that because um, these were all in the 1996 standard combined into disqualifications from competition, which we use now. Um, and as we know, those things can be temporary or permanent. But that was a big change um, and required a lot of, you know, flexibility in things like test questions for licenses, for youth contests, things like that. So it was a big shift in the standard. Um, that was something that was being finalized about that time. And of course, this is early in the year. So standards were going into print much more quickly because things just, they took more time back then. That's so interesting. Gosh, I, I had no idea about that. I mean, I've looked at old standards before, but <clears throat> I don't remember ever bumping into the elimination versus DQs. I mean, as someone studying for a, a test or training someone and helping them study, that's like twice as much work, it seems like, to qualify it, it, the kind of DQ it is. It, it kind of was. Um, yeah. You know, like I said, it was mostly the, the dividing line was whether it was temporary or permanent. Um, but it was. It was another thing to remember, especially when you're on the spot, uh, maybe in showmanship or something like that. So this all made it a little bit easier. So cool. So 1985, in the spring edition, we had some pretty monumental changes uh, in our industry. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, things never change. Um, so we're talking about some of the things we talk about today. You know, now we still talk about our equipment and the new standard changes coming up. So, so yeah, it's, it's interesting. The more things change, fresh. the more they stay the same. Well, and that's fresh in your mind as uh, the standards chair and someone who's actively working on not only the current, but probably the next standard of perfection, right? This is a job that doesn't end just because it's printed now, correct? Like this is something you're, you're probably thinking about and taking notes on on the next edition, which is still five years away, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, we're still, we're issuing some corrections. That You'll see that in my report in the DR. Our big change this time that's causing a lot of questions for us is the removal of the list of breeds under the body type profiles. And um, I know that that was a big learning tool for people to look at those lists and, you know, kind of relate that to a body type. But there were some breeds that just weren't well served by that. And we felt that that was kind of encouraging a little bit of overgeneralization and um, an understanding of body type. Um, and the information um, outside of the breed standard, the breed standard is, of course, the blueprint of what a breed should look like. That's the ideal. Um, that's what to pay attention to when you're learning breed type. And it's not just body type. It's things like bone, head, feet and legs, ears that, that combine to give you the ideal picture of the rabbit structure. So we intend that those body type profiles will be used as reference material. So, so my question to you, I, that was actually when I bumped into the, the standard, I've been, I've been doing the same thing, reading this, the updated version. And I didn't get very far because I, I'm just saturating every page. But that was one thing that I noticed that the body type profiles, by the way, there's one more now, right? Head, high head mount breeds, yes. which I think is brilliant because let's face it, Netherland dwarfs, fuzzy lops, um, Holland lops, Jersey woolies. Yeah, they're compact in type, but they're not exactly a Florida white or a Havana. So I think brilliant to to kind of give them their own category of, of body because it is different while also being some, somewhat similar. Um, right. The my, pose my... is different. And I think um, that's really what those body type profiles is for is to kind of 
suggest the correct pose and the characteristics you're looking for in the pose of the animal. Um, and a lot of these breed standards, they will refer back to, you know, they'll say high head mount or head is to be set high in the shoulder. So then, you know, that's a part of the standard that you look at to learn a little bit more about that body type and how it's posed. Um, I guess the and, question is, it's not going to be archaic to say that Flemish giants have semi-arch body type, right? No, it, um, that's a semi-arch profile. It's the okay. same, you know, top line and profile as you see in other breeds. Um, but if you look at, for example, you know, Flemish giants, Beverins, um, English lops, there's different structures um, in those animals. There's different bone, there's different fur, there's different ears, head shapes, things like that. Um, so we really kind of want to emphasize those differences. Um, and there's some breeds that have very unique body type that never really fit in those categories. Um, dwarf Otos and Silvers. About the only thing they have in common is that they're small rabbits. <laughs> <laughs> Everything else is different. Um, so, But they, they're posed the same. Um, but the other characteristics of the body are very different. So we just um, want to make sure that we're not kind of glossing over some of those very important differences in body type by by lumping them into categories where maybe they don't quite fit. I think it's a very progressive move and so smart. And it, 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 it's a nod to the fact that within our rabbit and cavey industry that it's evolving and that we recognize the fact that not everything is is perfect and, and we're always striving to make it better, um, not only for our exhibitors, but, but for the rabbits, we're still striving for those, you know, those perfections and it's going to take evolving a standard and recognizing some of the faults within it to, to, to get there. Right. Absolutely. Very cool. Well, so, but for kids that are studying, by the way, like if they're doing showmanship and they say that uh, New Zealand has commercial body type, like we want to emphasize that you can still say that and that's still correct. Right. The New Zealand, um, the New Zealand standard says the rabbit should emphasize exemplify meat producing qualities. So that's a commercial rabbit. So yeah, but it's a breed standard that informs us of that, not a list in the front of the book. Not generalizations. Very cool. All right. So should we get into our uh, segment three of this, of, of episode three? Absolutely. Our guest yeah. today is um, Dr. Scott Williamson, better known to some of us as Doc. Um, I know that you met him well, you're a student of his. I met him because we share the passion for the same breed, which is Dutch. We oh, both started as youth breeders and, and are dedicated to that breed. So tell us what you know about Dr. Scott. Well, I, I couldn't think of a, of a, a, more, a, a more special guest uh, for this podcast than, than, than Doc. I call him Doc. He was my professor at Fresno State. And I, it would take hours, maybe days for me to exactly illustrate how much he's meant to me over the years. But um, imagine this. Imagine, you know, I, I talked about in a previous uh, podcast about being that awkward kid that raised rabbits and was afraid to tell kids at school about what I was doing on the weekends and every day when I got home with rabbits because I was, you know, I was a little embarrassed. Like kids were mean. So when I went to college, uh, I moved to the West Coast and decided to go to Fresno State. One of the reasons I I chose that school and, and this pathway was because um, one of the animal science professors or the swine professor was a rabbit judge, and that's that's Dr. Scott Williamson. And I'll tell you what. He doesn't teach just swine science. I had him for classes in environmental management, genetics. Um, I didn't take his feeds and feeding or nutrition class, but he teaches that as well. He is brilliant and adored by his students. And I can't, yeah, I can't tell you how lucky I was to have him because he made rabbits okay, not just okay, but he made rabbits cool in the classroom. So while I'm sitting amongst kids that may have grown up you know, on big ranches and had cattle and showed hogs and you know high dollar animals. He made rabbits 
cool, normal, and consistent in his classroom when he teaches. And I don't think he was just doing that for me. Like he, he makes sure that that's, that rabbits are not ignored because they are an important species and they are very important to some people. And they act as a catalyst in a lot of large animal life. Uh, I'm sure Doc's going to tell us a little bit about his history, but um, he may be the swine professor at Fresno State, but swine were not his first animal. So um, he's received, he has a PhD in uh, meat science from the University of Illinois at Champaign. He has a master's in ruminant nutrition. <laughs> this is all coming off of memory, Doc. Um, and his undergrad was done at Purdue University. His son, Bo Williamson, was actually the president of FFA, the national president, that is. It was a huge moment. I remember I remember being with Doc actually at the Fort Worth Convention in 2006 when he found out and got the news from his son that he had, he had won that prestigious um, presidential slot there with FFA. Um, he has four kids, I believe, and Hannah's his youngest. She did some rabbits. All of his kids have done rabbits over the years. Um, currently, he's teaching, of course, at Fresno State in the animal science department. He is an ARBA judge, longtime ARBA judge, celebrated Dutch breeder amongst other breeds, uh, esteemed member of a former member of the ARBA Standards Committee, um, and one of the most influential men in my life. And I'm very proud to call him my friend and professor, and I like to also call him my second dad. So, Dr. Scott Williamson, welcome to our Best in Show podcast. Well, thanks for all those kind words, Alan. I hope I can live up to them. <laughs> you already do. So, tell us, Doc, um, how did your pathway in rabbits begin? Begin with pet rabbits, like most people do. And uh, we had a neighbor down the road called Bonesy Steel was his name. And he had a rabbit that was all white named Pinky. That was my very first rabbit. It was in New Zealand. And my sister had a crossbred rabbit named Tinkerbell. And uh, Pinky was a male, and uh, or buck. And Tinkerbell was a female. We started uh, putting them together, of course, and raising rabbits. My dad built this huge rabbit cage out of... Uh, my dad worked for a general telephone company, and uh, he had access to these cross arms, which were uh, the old in the old telephone poles. They had these cross arms that went across the telephone pole that held glass insulators that held the telephone wire that went from town to town. So we're talking real old. I can tell you another story <laughs> about one time. You know those old crank phones made out of oak, mm-hmm. and you know we he had about three hundred of them. I can remember burning those one day because he didn't want them anymore. Can you imagine what they'd be worth today? Oh, my God. Yeah. 300 of them. But anyway, <laughs> he built this rabbit cage that could probably hold, old, I'd say, at least a baby calf. <laughs> it was that strong. It was out of hardware cloth and chicken wire. And, uh, a lot of good memories about that. But unfortunately, my rabbit, Pinky, contracted ear canker, and I didn't know anything about it. My dad went about to take the rabbit to a veterinarian. So Pinky died a very painful death because we didn't know how to treat it. And it just, you know, I can still visualize that in my head. And this is when I was about five or six years old. So I was heartbroken, of course. And so I got this duck named Beep Beep next, I guess. But uh, going to the fair was one of the highlights of growing up for me. And because there's so many animals there to look at. And of course, we had lots of animals on the farm. But, you know, my dad didn't like pigs, so we couldn't have any pigs. We had, you know, chickens and we had uh, dairy calves we'd feed out. And we had uh, sheep. We had he bought me a pony, uh, ginger, but uh, I had a real hankering for rabbits. I'd go through that rabbit tent. It was a tent at the time at the LaPorte County Fair and just marvel at the different breeds of rabbits. And I saw these tort Dutch that really caught my eye that Janice Oheim had. And uh, she had some for sale or for $1.50. Well, you know, my dad was a big believer in make your own money, spend your own money. So 
uh, I had a dollar fifty in my pocket, burning a hole in my pocket. Instead of playing the carnival games, I went down to the uh, 4-H office where he was working on a, a dairy herd record books for 4-Hers. He bought two or three other guys, too. And I asked him if I could get this rabbit. He says, as long as you understand, you have to take care of it. So lo and behold, I went down there and bought that tort Dutch dough for $1.50. And that began my uh, uh, introduction to Dutch rabbits, I guess. <laughs> Pretty remarkable. And I was mentored by Tom Shuffelbotham, who was uh, one of the uh, pioneers of the Dutch rabbit in his, the United States, an Englishman, an import, if you will, himself. <laughs> and uh, he came over on a boat and worked for, uh, I believe it was uh, Ben Franklin Insurance. He lived in Valparaiso. It was about 30 miles away. And I got to know more about him because we went to these uh, uh, LaPorte County rabbit meetings out of Frank Thompson. Frank Thompson was a big New Zealand breeder, and Tom and he would argue all the time about which is better, Dutch or New Zealand's and such. And we had a ball, us kids did. Frank always had Cheetos, you know, way back then. And <laughs> us kids would be eating Cheetos and drinking pop, and the guys would be, you know, talking rabbits or other things. And Tom brought over some uh, cold Dutch, and in there he had a tort buck, so... He gave me the torp buck and said, here, take this home and see if you can get that dough bread. Well, I took it home, got the dough bread, and from then on, Tom Shelfabot and I became very good friends. So and I went over to his house several times, not just to be educated, but when he and Squeak, that was his wife's uh, uh, pet name he had for her. His name was Her name was Dorothea, but he called her Squeak. Uh, would go on vacation. I'd go. I'd drive all the way to Valparaiso and take care of his rabbits. So uh, that was about a 30-mile drive one way. But, you know, Couts, Indiana is real close to Valparaiso. And, of course, that's where Heinold Feet is manufactured in Couts. So it's all kind of up there in the northern Indiana area. And I learned a lot through uh, uh, about rabbits, particularly Dutch rabbits from Tom, and really got me kicked off to becoming a better student, to be honest with you, because I didn't like to read before. But then when I discovered rabbits, I couldn't read enough. And I read everything I could about rabbits. And uh, then I started reading other things, of course, and found out when you read, you become a little bit smarter. So I kept on reading. And that the rabbits really helped me come out of my shell because I was one of them shy, introverted kids that wouldn't say much and such as that kind of uh, uh, to himself. And uh, so I didn't, uh, I didn't, uh, I wasn't in a clique, so to speak, in grade school or high school. I had a lot of friends that were, but, you know, I was very proud of having rabbits. And they'd always tease me just like they did you, Alan. You know, well, how many you got now? When you go home, I bet you'll have more. I said, it doesn't work like that, guy. <laughs> you know, apparently, you don't know anything about reproduction, I tell them. But anyway, um, very proud of my rabbits. I started showing rabbits. And second rabbit show I ever went to, well, the first rabbit show I went to was in uh, northern Indiana, the Michiana Rabbit Breeders Association. It was November of 69. And, uh, I won a reserve and show with a Dutch rabbit named Blue Boy and uh, went over to my Aunt Ellen's house and took a picture of that rabbit. We took the rabbits to the show. I think it took three uh, Dutch. And uh, we took them in these old ammunition cases that were made out of wood. And my dad and I, you know, cut uh, little holes in them and put hardware cloth on so the rabbits could have ventilation in there. And so that was our first carrying cases. And uh, one reserve best in show, or best Dutch in a reserve and show with that. And quite a way to kick it off. No kidding. The second show I went to, I took Janice Oheim's New Zealand's because she had New Zealand's goose. She couldn't go to the show in Tipton. And uh, 
Bobby Byrne was a judge. And both of you know Bobby Byrne. Several of you folks that might listen to this podcast know Bobby Burns. He's not with us anymore, but he was a brilliant person and a great judge and was a wealth of information. And at that show, uh, I showed Janice Oheim's New Zealand as well as my Dutch. And I was showing her New Zealand's. I didn't have a whole lot of interest in that. I must have been acting real disinterested because Bobby says, young man, come behind this table. And I went behind the table and he said, let me show you about type. And he drew a picture and he said, there's two things that influence type on any animal. And as the shape of the spine, just exactly what you and Brian were talking about in terms of the shape of the spine that gives us the different body con- conformations, and then the length of the vertebrae. And that has stuck with me all these years. Remember, that was back in, I think that was back in 1970 because that was in the spring of the year I went to that show. So that's, you know, 50 years that what he told me that day has stuck with me the rest of my life. So. We need to pass that information on to younger people. That's why I like to educate when I judge too. And no one educates like you, Doc. We've all been touched, but we all talk about having you at the, at the show table. It's more than just getting your rabbits evaluated. It's, it's going home with a lesson and how to make our game better the next time we come out. And I love that there's several, there are like, like three generations of mentorship just in this conversation. <laughs> you know, that information, it, it carries on. It's so important. Absolutely. Passing that information on is quite important, I think, in anything. But uh, I've been a big benefactor of that in rabbits. Well, and you like to talk about BR. What 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 is what does BR mean to Dr. Scott Williamson? What does what mean? BR. BR. Before rabbits. Help me, help me again. What's that? Helen? Isn't it before rabbits? Oh yeah. Thanks. Yeah. That's a, that's a different story that kind of relates to what I said earlier. Uh, my daughter, Kelly, who's my third child, uh, you don't, you didn't see her many at many shows because she's too busy being a great student. She was the Dean's medalist here at Fresno state in agriculture. And she now makes wine. Wow. I can tell you another funny I need to, story about her. I need to get her number. Yeah. She, she works for Gallo out here at the big tank farm on Clovis Avenue, but uh, she's like assistant winemaker. She sees, uh, gone up quite a bit. But anyway, she went home one time and went to her grandma's house and they were cleaning out the attic of some of my stuff. And uh, she found my report cards. And so she comes back with this big grin on her face and she goes, what's all these C's, dad? And she's shaking the cards at me. Mm-hmm. I said, well, that's probably B- BR. She goes, what's BR? I said, that's before rabbits. She goes, what do you mean? I said, when I got interested in rabbits, I started reading and I found out reading was kind of fun and learning things was really fun. And uh, that beca- that made me a better student. So I went from a C student to uh, pretty much all A's. You know, I, I'm going to sit, sit here and tell you I got all A's because I didn't. Uh, I went to uh, uh, to being just an average student to be a pretty doggone good student and uh, always having a thirst for knowledge. That's what Rabbits gave me is a thirst for knowledge. And I think that's what students need is they need to find a passion and a thirst for knowledge in an area that they really enjoy. I couldn't agree more. Brian, what do you, what do you think about that? Oh, absolutely. I think, um, you know, you hear a lot today about everybody gets a trophy, participation trophies, things like that. Um, stuff like rabbits or finding a passion. 
Um, that's what helps people build self-esteem and self-confidence. It's finding that passion, even if it's not something competitive like rabbits, but just finding something you love, finding something you can learn about and, you know, gain some confidence and, and some inspiration. I think that's, that's really, really important um, for everybody. And I think that Doc would agree you too, Brian. We talked about this in the first episode that if you're seeking that, that passion and you wanted to be inspired, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you came from, what your job was, how much money you make, where you went to school. Like you come to a rabbit show and it's all neutralized. You are rabbit people when you are at an Arabia show. And, and it's like, like I've heard Doc tell this story. It's like, young man, come behind the table. You know, I'm going to teach you about type like that. I don't say it like that, but people said it to me and I'm sure said it to you too, Brian, like get behind this table. Let me, let me teach you something. And if we all have that, I mean, we do have that. It's, it's magical. It, it is why our industry continues to grow and thrive when other livestock species, Doc probably can talk about this, and especially in breeding animals has declined. Yeah, yeah absolutely. What, what really uh, disturbs me sometimes. And when I judge these other species, of course, you know, I judge quite a few hog shows. When you give your reasons on the microphone, a lot of these people that judge any larger livestock will just talk about the ones up on top. And I figure, well, those people don't need much help. They're doing it right. right. I still comment on the ones on the top, but I give just as many reasons on the one in the bottom end of the class. I've adopted some of what we do in the rabbits and put that in the larger livestock species where everybody gets uh, my view of what their animal had that was good or could be improved upon. And I think that's important for the bottom end of the class. If they're listening, hopefully they can make advances for next year or the next time they have a project so they can have a better project. After all, we were all in 4-H, I think, and we know that motto, and Brian, he kind of alluded to it earlier, and that's to make the best better. Maybe it was you, Ellen, that said making things better all the time. And I thought right away that 4-H motto, to make the best better. So it's with all of us. And and Doc, as a university professor, you're 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 teaching animal science to students that come from that livestock background. Um, over the years, when you incorporate rabbits, did you ever like are you approached with like eye rolls from students or from your from your you know colleagues and on the faculty? Do, do they quite get the rabbit thing? You know, how how do you how do you introduce rabbits to a, a classroom filled with large animal kids? Well, it depends, I think, how you introduce it. And because, you know, I was fortunate enough when I came to Fresno State, you know, over 36 years ago, there was a person on staff that also loved rabbits. His name was Dr. John Jacobs, and he was the meat scientist. So it was already kind of a friendly environment in the department. And then uh, he retired and then passed away. And then we've got a new person in the department. Her name is uh, Dr. Katie Tarrant, and she was the Texas rabbit queen. Hmm. But she's the poultry professor and she still likes rabbits. She wants to have Californians, but she's still a little slow about getting into that because she's so busy with the the poultry operation here at Fresno State and teaching the classes because she's a young new faculty member. But students like just Friday, Alan and Bryony, I talked about the rabbit dental formula, you know, where I don't know if you, uh, I don't think you took animal nutrition from me, Alan, but in there I talk about uh, dental formulas for livestock and course we know rabbits are unique because they have six incisors and we don't see the peg teeth that count for the top uh the four on the upper for those maxillary plate and we only see those front teeth and the bottom uh two teeth that are on the mandible that uh, constitute the incisors 
and you know, and it was a rabbit profile that I showed him. It wasn't, you know, a, a beef animal profile or a hog profile or a horse profile. It was a rabbit profile, rabbit skeleton, rabbit head laid out there so they could see on an overhead by Zoom, by the way, hmm. on the canvas that they could that I could share that with them. So they're learning about rabbits as well as nutrition. So we've got a stronger base of not just egg teachers, but people that have an appreciation for it. And you'd be amazed at the number of people that were not acquainted with rabbits and probably thought, rabbits, come on. I sat next to a young man named Dave Walter in uh, swine production at the uh, Purdue University. Bright guy. When he had kids, guess who he called when those kids wanted to show a meat pen at the state fair? Me. Amazing. And I gave him information as to where to get some good meat rabbits for uh, pins at the state fair. Well, lo and behold, he went out to Bobby. He made a trip from Indiana to North Carolina to get some of Bobby Crawford's museum. Wow. So he, he really went for the best. He's serious about it. See, he's serious about it. Because he, he still uh, works with hogs. He has a big uh, commercial AI stud back in, uh, I think it's Warren, Indiana, where he lives. But uh, anyway, he went all the way to North Carolina to get those New Zealand's, and he got bred does. He brought them back, and only one of them kindled. She had four rabbits. One of them had a club foot, but there are three in there, and they fed them right, took care of them correctly, and lo and behold, they were grand champion meat pin at the Indiana State Fair that year and sold for $10,000. Jeez. Work smarter, not harder. You know, when Bo sold his meat pins, at, and other kids in California sell their meat pins at the State Fair, and they bring 2000 to $6,000, that gets their attention. Yeah, no. <laughs> and they they don't laugh at him anymore because because I, I told Bo because Bo one year won Grand Champion Meat Pin and Reserve Grand Champion Hog. He got more for his meat pin than he did for his hog. Incredible! Oh, wow! Yes, incredible. You know, Doc, you touched on um, reproduction earlier when you were saying you know the kids joke about um, oh how many rabbits you got you know when you get home today it's going to be twice as many as when you left for school this morning. Um, if you don't mind, maybe we could dive into. Uh, kind of a Dr. Scott Williamson classroom with you and maybe talk about reproduction on a serious level. Like what makes rabbits so unique um, compared to other species when it comes to reproduction? Well, first off, we all know that rabbits aren't that easy to get bred all the time, are they? <laughs> no, they're not. We usually can't get enough uh, baby rabbits, can we? Nope. So that's, that's our challenge. But rabbits are unique because they're induced ovulators. They don't have a normal heat cycle like most of our other domestic farm animals have. So you can put a rabbit that doesn't show any signs of heat in with a buck, and if she's stimulated, she'll ovulate. And it's a penal stimulation by preceded by 30 to 40 copulatory movements and a single insertion of the penis, and that's what causes that stimulation that's neurological to go up to the brain and cause the uh, ovulation of eggs off the ovaries. So, and then the, the good thing to do is what I always did when I bred rabbits is I, I usually, the first thing I did when I feed the rabbits is breed any does that I had, I wanted to breed. Then I'd feed the rabbits and, you know, get those out that I was getting ready for show or just because they're, to me, rabbits are therapy and they, they have a common uh, sense. And I get them out and pet them and, you know, look at them and admire them and say, well, you look pretty good. And I'd have Bo or Hannah particularly. Look at the rabbits and I always find something I didn't because I was barn blind. You know, everybody's got a little barn blindness, I guess. <laughs> but anyway, I said, dog on it. That's right. <laughs> anyway, um, then I'd feed the rabbits and do that 
uh, other stuff, that therapy that I was just talking about. And then before I left, I'd read them again. And, you know, one thing Dutch are known for, and um, Brian, will back me up on this. Bucks are not usually shy about breeding. Never. Reason I won't mention any how a lot (laughs) that are a little bit shy about breeding. They'll sit over in a corner and act like they're not interested. Not all of them are like that, but some of them are. I think if we, if we, if we left survival and reproduction up, if we left survival and reproduction up to a Hollenlop, let's face it, they'd be an endangered species. They, they would be, wouldn't they? But sometimes, because <laughs> I, I know a lot of Hollenlop breeders, a lot of them are my friends, and I'm amazed at how they feed them and coddle them. And they used to do more than what they do now because they've gotten around to building a stronger strain. or And that's a selection process, and that's a good that they're doing that where they're selecting hardier animals and they don't have to feed them, you know, shredded wheat and all this other good stuff to make them survive and ensure whatever else they were feeding them. Lactated ringers. Yeah. Yeah. And Brian, he said it best at the show. I said, how do you get that good condition on your rabbits? He goes, it's just good food and water. That's it. That's the secret. You feed a good balanced diet. That's a really well formulated, uh, high quality feed. That's a pellet. And uh, keep your water fresh and make sure there's no contaminants in it. There's no big secret. You can add this or that if you want to, and you can feed some long fiber. But the secret is uh, just keep uh, the right amount of feed that's fresh in front of them and good, clean of uh, water. Because, Alan, you know this, and you didn't have my nutrition class. How should water be presented, Alan? You ready? Cool, clean, and abundant. You make me proud. We we could not leave your classroom without (laughs) Without knowing that, but I, hey, I repeat it all the time. Absolutely. So one of the questions that we see, especially a lot of new breeders ask on Facebook or in person, um, is how do you choose a brand to feed? What advice would you give people if they have a selection in their area? Well, you know, quality is the most important thing to me. You know, I, I would be willing to pay a premium for a feed that's the same quality all the time. There are no least cost formulation. Some of these groups do least cost formulation. I've fed a caveat of feeds. Uh, and I've fed feeds that uh, when I was at U of I, I was having trouble with rabbits eating their wool. Well, I called up the company and they got a hold of the uh, nutritionist for the rabbits and they said they put blood meal in the feed. I said, well, why would you do that? And they said, well, that improves the protein content. I said, you're right, but they don't like blood meal. They don't like the smell of it. They don't like the taste of it. So they were not eating as much feed, so they needed protein, so they'd be eating their hair up their chest. Wow. All of them, not just one or two of them that was neurotic, all of them. So first thing I look at is uh, you open the bag and see if it has a fresh smell to it. Then it has, got a, has to have a good green color on it. It can't have any corn in it. Not that corn's bad for a rabbit, but corn can have a contaminant called the xeranol or mycotoxins which is a mold that can kill a rabbit or can, uh, or can reduce the animal's fertility. So I would not recommend uh, a, a rabbit a pellet that has corn in it unless it has human-grade uh, corn. That's something that doesn't have xeranol and mycotoxin in it. Because most feed mills aren't going to you know, have that quality of corn. I think that feed that you feed currently, uh, Bryony, they do a real good job of selecting their ingredients and do a real good job of quality insurance. And that's what's important in a feed. Make sure the mill does a great job of quality assurance. They have the right person milling the feed so it's not somebody sweeping up the floor 
and throwing that in the rabbit feet, not making the right pellet. Because I've seen everything in rabbit feed. I've seen rat food in uh, rabbit feed because rat food is a big pellet. And you know, I looked at it and I was in rat feed. I said, how does contaminant get in there? And I've seen a clean out because when you clean out the pellet dye, usually push oats through it. I've seen clean out in rabbit pellets. That shouldn't be in there. That should be clean out and be incorporated into another diet that maybe a ruminant diet or a non-ruminant diet that isn't as critical as rabbit. And a lot of people think that they got plenty of fiber because there's fiber in the rabbit feed. Well, they've got to grind that fiber so fine to make a pellet that the fiber's lost its integrity in terms of what fiber is supposed to do. So fiber is designed for a rabbit just just like fiber is designed for us. You got to remember rabbits are non-ruminants, but they are cecotropes, so they do have an enlarged cecum. So they can utilize some of the cellulose that's in the diet, but the reason why you want a longer fiber is so that it can, you know, kind of scrub the gut, if you will. Keep it from getting stale. Keep those uh, villi and microvilli open so they can do their job. And I think I really think that some of the problems we see back in the Midwest and the Midwest milled feeds is from the source of the, uh, the feed ingredients, whether it be the hay that might have a little mold in it or the corn that might have a little mycotoxin in it that you don't know about, and the feed bill doesn't know about it. They don't do it on purpose. But out here in California, I can tell you most of the feed out here that we get at the mills is pretty clean feed because we typically have really good alfalfa that's not been rained on. It's not moldy or uh, any kind of hay that's not moldy, like if you use Timothy hay. And I'd recommend people once a week feed a long stem hay. And it could be Timothy, it could be orchard grass, it could be, you know, uh, even alfalfa. So, and what does the long stem do? Does it have a does it have a um, like a mechanical means to it? A mechanical stimulation or uh, an abrasion to the uh, small intestine to keep it cleaned out. It's kind of like when your drains get clogged and your uh, uh, like kitchen sink or bathroom. Sometimes you gotta uh, plunge them out or uh, scrub them out, and that's what the gut. The gut is a uh, the small intestine, as you know, is round in nature and the inside of it's called the lumen and projecting into the lumen are these things little finger-like projections called villi and on top of them are microvilli they're very microscopic they're microscopic in nature so you can't see them but they clog up real easy and they clog up with this routine diet that's got a very small uh particle size because it makes a paste instead of uh you know uh kind of scrubs the uh lining of the gi tract then those several those those various uh, uh, phys- uh anatomical features cannot do their job well if they don't do their job well the rabbit's not going to do as well or any animal that has that so so basically so the hay opens up the the you call it microvilli for absorption so they can actually maximize what they're eating kind of scrubs it out a little bit also it keeps things moving along the alimentary canal just like fiber does for us you know, if you just ate ice cream all day long, you wouldn't die, but you'd probably be constipated. <laughs> right? Same thing. So you have, the reason you put fiber in your diet is to uh, not be constipated so things move through your body. You know, we can't utilize fiber. You know, sorry, our bodies aren't designed to do that. You know, but it's important so our bodies get that same effect of scrubbing those uh, the walls of the uh, intestine so that those uh, anatomical features down there can do their job. 
So it's it's not so it's not so important that the that that roughage or that long stem be high in nutrition, but that it just move through the body in the mechanical. That's why Timothy hay is a good hay to feed because you know it it doesn't high in protein, but it has that fiber component, and it's long fiber so that they can they'll bite it off, they'll chew it up, and it's not going to be as long as when you put it in there, obviously, for them to eat. But it's going to be, you know, about a half to an inch long when the rabbit swallows it, mm-hmm. you know, and then it's going to go through the GI tract. It's going to be degraded a little bit, but it's going to pass out, too, because if you look at a rabbit stool, it is pretty fibrous in nature. You want it fibrous in nature. The sequel, the sequel pellet, of course, you don't, because everybody's seen a sequel pellet. Probably you might not have known it. Some people might be listening to this podcast, but those are like uh, grape-like clusters of uh very, um, uh, how should I say this? It's more viscous grape-like clusters of manure that come directly out of the rabbit, and they ingest it directly because it's, it's they're harvesting uh, what has been manufactured in the cecum, which is post-absorptive. So it goes through again, and that's good that they do that. But the normal rabbit uh, stool is round, it's fibrous in nature, and it should float. If you put it in water, it should float. If it doesn't float, then your rabbits are constipated. Or if you see little BBs, uh, depending on the size of the rabbit, you know, when they're babies, you're going to see little BBs because what's a baby rabbit eat? Milk, right? They they drink milk. That's not got fiber in it. Hmm. It's only when they go to their uh, transition diet. And I really believe that the good feed mills that are making rabbit feed for serious rabbit producers have a transition diet from mother's milk to solid feed. Don't we do that for other livestock species? Yeah, rabbits are no different. They can eat some roughage, but they need something to take them from the milk that their gut's used to to this roughage feed that we offer them at, in a pellet. And uh, there is some com- there are some companies out there that have transitional feeds. There are some companies out there that have phase feeds. You know, there's companies out there that have feeds designed for wool breeds of rabbits, which is good because they have a different amino acid requirement uh, to meet the needs of those animals as they're trying to grow a good, strong, healthy coat of wool. Amazing. Doc, I miss you in the classroom so much. Everyone that's listening to this podcast, I had this guy uh, three times a week when I was in, when I was at university. And um, I mean, the imagery, you make everything science that you, that you speak of tangible and understandable. I mean, people listening to this chat now, you know, you hear that, Hey, feeding a roughage is good, but did we know that it's actually just scraping the, the inside of the, the intestines for absorption? And you're brilliant. I'm so, so grateful to have you here. And I miss you so much in the classroom. I was, I was one of the luckiest guys I alive. I miss teaching in the classroom. Uh, I can't even imagine how frustrating that is for you. Frustrating because you can't see, you know, I can't see how students are taking this information in. Right. You know, because the teacher depends on the audience and stuff. What they're, if they're squirming around or if they're not listening, I can, Get them back into focus with Zoom. You can't do that as easily. Yeah, Not at all. it makes things hard. So we've talked about some of the um, nutritional requirements for optimal health and reproduction. What about some of the other environmental requirements um, that people need to to think about in their facilities when they're setting it up to to have rabbits breed like rabbits? Okay. Well, let me touch first on nutrition just a little bit more. Sure. Because a lot of people think that the rabbit pellets. A rabbit pellet's good all year round, but that's not the case because animals eat to meet an energy requirement. Although rabbits got fur coats, they still need a little more energy if they're exposed to the cold weather. 
And believe me, one of the reasons I moved to California is, and I told my students this just this week in animal nutrition, I hated to go down to the rabbit tree, and we had about three of them set up down by the barn where the rabbits had crocs filled with water that had been frozen, and you see little lick marks in that water bowl because that means they were thirsty enough to lick that ice. That's how thirsty they were. And it wasn't two hours after you put fresh water in there that it would be frozen solid again. But that was the time before, you know, heated water lines and such as that. And, you know, we didn't have the money to do that anyway. So I'd carry buckets of hot water down there, melt the crock, melt, pop the ice out of the crock and uh, throw the ice away real quick so I could put another crock in without losing that hot water because it's about 100 yards to the house where the hot water was. And I had to go down and get more hot water. But I, and at least they had water for two hours. And I'd go out in the morning and just add water to the crops. So they'd have water in the morning too, because water is a very essential nutrient. I want people to be really cognizant of that fact. Because a lot of times we think, oh, they'll drink it. But I told my kids when they were growing up, if you won't drink that water, don't think that rabbit's going to drink that water. Because if they, they got a little lazy when we were feeding rabbits or watering rabbits, I'd say, go ahead and drink the water. <laughs> well, no. Why not? Well, it's gross. It's got film in it. It's got slime in it. It's got poopy in it. Well, clean it out. Because I I used to take uh, and clean the crocs every day when I'd, I'd switch it with a uh, abrasive pad. And uh, it was had uh, a little uh, inclusion of bleach. So... If it was something that was growing in there besides algae, that would take care of it. And going from a crock to crock prevented the disease spread. But they got a clean crock with clean water every day. And that's really, really important to, uh, to know because their bodies, as well as our bodies, is about 75 to 80% water. The body can't function properly if they're not getting enough water. And if there's a contaminant in the water, whether it be a contaminant that fouls the water or a mineral contaminant that's in the water, like uh, Alan can t- tell you this because we judge in Hanford together and Hanford has a high sulfur content to their water. And that's the, the sulfur won't hurt you, but you got to be able to drink it. It smells like sulfur. So they're not going to drink as much of it. So there's things that I add to the water or, uh, you know, and I'm not trying to make a commercial for Jonathan, but uh, nutritional research makes this product. His uncle came up with the, uh, formulation was called aquavide and i'm a strong believer in that because not only did it provide the vitamins that the animal needs to perform reproductively but also it gave a little flavor to the water because it's got a dextrose base and it would hide flavors in the water that might be there particularly when you go to shows or conventions where you can't carry enough water to um, provide that to your animal when you're traveling so that's another benefit to that but Back to what you were asking about reproduction, water is the first thing I'd make sure we had uh, a good quality uh, supply of. The second thing is a good quality feed. Like you said before, Brian, it's got to be a good feed. It's got to be balanced in terms of the dietary requirements for rabbits. And to add to that supplement, I use that Aquavite product because it's got vitamins in it that may have been destroyed by the pelleting process. Because when a, a feed is pelleted, it's a heat process. They're actually pressed through a dye under pressure, and there's, it's hot when it goes through that dye. 
And there are certain vitamins that are thermal labile. There's other ones that are photolabile. One of the best, that, that means they're destroyed by light, of course. And one of the good experiments I like to show the nutrition class is I make up a, a gallon of aquavite and it's got a yellow color to it because of the riboflavin that's in it. And I set it in the sun. And by the end of the class, that jug of yellow colored water turns clear again because the sunlight has destroyed that vitamin. So it's not there anymore. It's the, the effective uh, vitamin is not there. And everybody knows that uh, it's familiar with human reproduction, that there's folic acid that's the vitamin of pregnancy. Well, if it's a vitamin for pregnancy for uh, people, is it a vitamin for pregnancy in uh, animals? You bet it is. So folicin is important, too. That needs to be elevated a bit. And so when we feed our rabbits, we got to make sure that the vitamin profile is met in terms of their requirements. Also, the energy requirement, too, because in the wintertime, they need more energy. In the summertime, they need a little less energy. When we formulate, I learned this from formulating swine diets because that differs from a summer to winter, too, because they don't need as much energy, so they're not going to eat as much in the summer. So you got to make sure your protein level is up so they get enough protein, enough vitamins, and all the other uh, minerals and such as that that come along with that energy. If they eat less of the feed, then they're not going to get a, a, enough of those critical nutrients. In the wintertime, they're going to eat more of the feed, so you don't need as much of those. But I don't change the formulation that much of uh, vitamins and minerals and protein in the wintertime. But in the summertime, you need to elevate that so they get uh, enough of the nutrients that they uh, need, the minimum requirement to perform. The next thing uh, about reproduction is you got to make sure you got healthy animals. Because a lot of people don't realize it, but their, their animals have a subclinical infection where it's not as obvious. So whenever you go to a rabbit show, there's not much they can catch reproductively from a rabbit show unless they were um, active with a rabbit, let's say, at a rabbit show. But you got to make sure they have good nutrition so their reproductive performance is not impaired through nutrition. They don't have any disease because I've helped several people with uh, some uh, barnyard medicine, let's call it, to help their rabbits get started. And uh, But the big thing is light and temperature. Photo period and temperatures, because rabbits are photo period breeders. And that, that's through years and years of selection. Anybody ever wonder why it's easier to get rabbits this time of the year? Because daylight is increasing. So in your rabbitry, you should have daylight hours increasing. Not the same, but they've got to be increasing. So one week, you could set your light, your timer on for a certain period of time. And it doesn't have to be a big difference. You can increase it like 10 minutes every week or every month, and that's going to have a positive effect. Same way with temperature. Rabbits are not going to breed as well when it's ice cold out, you know, because that's not normal for them to do that. There's not rabbit, there's not uh, litters of rabbits born in the wild, but when it's snowing, is there? So that carries over from that, too. So you also got to make sure that uh, the temperature is uh, favorable for them. Anything above 50 degrees, they're going to be sexually active more sexually active. So that's your goal is to try to make it as close to 50 as you can where you're breeding. So if I was serious about breeding rabbits, I'd have a gestation room that might also be my kindling room that I would, you know, keep it a little higher than freezing in there and to be able to control the uh, lighting in there. And then the other thing, not just light, but the kind of light, because a lot of time we use incandescent lights or fluorescent lights. And that doesn't have the same UV that sunlight has. 
So I'm going to give you a big secret here. No cost, Alan, okay? <laughs> All right. So uh, I used to go and get uh, grow bulbs from the hardware store because those have the same UV that sunlight has for plants and use those fluorescent bulbs in the rabbitry. And that did a fabulous job of stimulating them properly so that when you turn those fluorescents on, if your rabbitry has no windows in it, and there's really no reason to have windows other than for you to look out of the window because, the, yeah, you can say, well, sunlight comes through there, but you can provide artificial light, but you got to make sure it's the right light. So those grow yeah. bulbs are, are more authentic, in other words. Grow bulbs, yeah. Very Same interesting. bulbs that you'd use like to start your uh, vegetables and such. Just use those instead. They still emit the same light to us. We don't see a difference, but the rabbit can pick up on it. Yeah, I wish Home Depot wasn't closed. I'd be going right now. Yeah, buy me some. too. But that's the other, that's the other thing too. A lot of people think. Uh, see, a lot of people make the mistake because when I was growing up, I'm trying to think of the people's name that lived in um, uh, South Bend. It was part of that Michiana club. I I can see him playing his day. The years New Zealand's they're really good at and had their rabbits all outside. What a miserable way to take care of rabbits, I thought, because you had to trudge out there and stuff. That's that's true love for rabbits when you got to go out there in the snow and <laughs> the rabbits got the shelter, but you don't and stuff. They had a bunch of rabbits. It wasn't just two or three pins. They had at least a hundred pins of rabbits that uh, were in these little uh, I call them isolettes. And um, anyway, they made they made a statement that. Well, we built this barn and brought them in, and a lot of rabbit breeders will say, we built this barn and brought them in, and it was a bunch of colds, and the rabbits weren't as healthy. Well, you know why they weren't as healthy? Because the ventilation was poor in your barn. Mm -hmm. Because we all know the rabbit have strong urine, very strong ammonia in rabbit uh, waste. And one of the things we do that's not real good for the rabbit itself is because we don't have much space, we stack them up. Now, I don't know how many of you, but I don't live over my toilet. <laughs> We're asking rabbits to live directly over their toilet. I love this They're analogy, by the way. This is house, but it's not. I'm not living <laughs> over the top. Okay? This is one of this is one of Doctor Scott Williamson's famous lines. It's <laughs> would you live above your toilet? Would you drink out of that water crock? <laughs> like yeah. these make so much sense. It's and why would you want to survive and let alone thrive when you're living, you know, in a stacking cage above your toilet? Basically, that's why I admire those people that clean their a rabbit trays out at least once a week. And then you've got to put something down in that rabbit tray so that the uh, urine doesn't just sit there and volatilize off. And what I used to use, here's another secret, and I think I learned this from Karen Leonard, who is from Oregon, I think. She used peat moss. And peat moss absorbs it and reduces the uh, odor quite a bit. And you don't need a very thick layer. If you're cleaning them every week and you collect that peat moss and you got the rabbit manure, and I guarantee you can sell that rabbit manure and peat moss, and you make enough money not only to pay for the peat moss, but probably your rabbit feed, too. Wow, that's right. a great idea. That's fertilizer. You got a head start on organic gardening right there. All right, after the podcast, we're, we're going to get into the Yeah, business. I've got a side hustle idea coming on. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. But, you know, and I'm, I'm a strong believer, and I'm trying to think of the guy's name that wrote the Earthworm book for the ARBA, Lucky Something. Maze, I think, was his name from Gulfport, Harold Mississippi. Maze, yes. He wrote a book about worms. Was that I, I think so. Tiny? Yeah, oh, I remember something yeah. Lucky Maze. I love that book. I love reading that book because if you've got a commercial rabbitry and you've got, you know, one level of cages and you let the manure fall in the pits, if you've got worms working in there, you're not going to have nearly as much odor. 
and you've got a product, not only you've got the compost, but you got worms you can sell too. It's a win-win. It's a win-win, absolutely. And, you know, it helps with the, the amount of the time that you spend cleaning out because you don't have to clean out as much, and you should clean out often, but still it, it reduces the amount of organic material you have to handle. Anytime you can compost, it's going to reduce the amount of organic matter you have to ultimately handle. But right. yeah, if you if you got very good nutrition, uh, you got uh, water that have you can add vitamins to because chances are some of the vitamins were destroyed. Make sure it has folosin in in the vitamin pack that you put in the water, and uh, you use those stim- the stimulation of light and increasing light hours and keeping the temperature up a little bit, and you uh, read religiously. In other words, you've got to be able to uh, spend some time. Reading like I did at the beginning of feeding, at the end of feeding, plus I palpated at 10 days. You know, you've got to get good at palpating. Some days I can't do it. We'll start when they're almost ready to kindle and then start backing up from there. Start at day 28 and then back up from there. Try to do a rabbit that's 25 days along or 20 days along. That's what I did. And I could get on a Dutch rabbit. I wasn't as good on the big rabbits, but the Dutch rabbits, I got where I could tell in 10 days if they're bred. That's pretty cool. And then you don't, you don't waste a month. That's right. And it's about, it's, you know, uh, Dick Evenberg and Kay Stearns were a powerhouse in Dutch rabbits. Brian Eakin can attest to that in the 80s. You know, wherever they went, they could win. And one thing, Kay, I went to high school with Kay, and Dick was ahead of us in school about, about three years. But uh, those people, listen, they did, they did what I said better than I would, okay? I said, you got to keep these doughs bred. Because with Dutch, you know, you're not going to get, you know, a perfect one every time or very much at all. And so you, it's a numbers game. So you got to keep them bred. You can't let these – if I didn't get six litters out of a doe a year, that's a crop failure. You know, and some does I'd get eight or nine litters because I'd be cross-fostering the babies. And we use the same kind of technique in larger livestock. You know, uh, up here at the, the University Dairy, we've got a, a cow up there at the dairy that they flush 34 eggs from. And, you know, a, a cat only usually give you one embryo at a time. Yeah, what a way to maximize genetics. pigs so much is because they're more like <laughs> rabbits. Mm-hmm. They don't, they, their sweat glands don't work. They can get heat uh, stress real easily. They have litters. It's like Christmas when they have litters because you don't know how many you're going to have. And if they're crossbred, you don't know what color they're going to be. It's kind of neat. There's a lot of similarities in the two animals. The only thing that's different is, you know, rabbits got a lot of, of hair on them. Pigs don't have much hair on them, so. Well, I, I'd argue that the that I, I would rather smell rabbit poop any day. I don't care if it's in a tray or not. Then, <laughs> one thing I don't miss about about the swine unit is the is is the pig crap. It depends on the price of uh, pork, Alan. It, it's, oh, some uh, price is really good. That's the smell of money. Right? <laughs> but if it's bad, it's just pig poop. And it stinks, you're right. You're probably immune to it after all these years. So. I hear that all the time when I drive through West Texas to shows and I complain about the smell and it smells like money. Well, not to me quite yet. (laughs) Oh man, that's debatable. Well, doc, it's been such a pleasure to have you. Um, Before we wrap up, you want to give a plug to any of your uh, animal science universities or or ways of of learning more about whether it's rabbits or animal science, inspire some of these younger minds that are, are listening to our podcast today. Well, you know, I've often thought, I sit and read about all these kids that are recognized for their scholarship or active with the king and queen or royalty contests and management. If that's your true passion, pursue that field. There's a job waiting for you. You know, you don't have to 
become a lawyer or a doctor to enjoy your rabbit hobby. Able to have a lot of money so you could do all that stuff, yeah. But, you know, there's some people that used to be California. Well, Jill grew up in California, the West Coast. But Troy grew up in Minnesota. They live in Iowa now. Jill has a true passion to have commercial rabbits, Jill Erke and Troy Erke. And, you know, they love rabbits and they love commercial rabbits. And they're, they have their rabbits because of the kind of jobs that they have. Neither one of them have a full-time job that has to do with rabbits. I think uh, Troy's a steam fitter, and uh, Jill uh, works in the poultry industry. But they enjoy the hobby and from the commercial side of it, too. And that's a passion that she had. So whatever passion you have a rabbits, don't let anybody spoil your dream. Don't let anybody step on your dream. Pursue that dream, whether you become a veterinarian or you become a, a, somebody that educates people, that whether it be at the high school or uh, uh, elementary school level or college level, uh, or you're involved in a business that, you know, pr- promotes agricultural products. You got to have that link to agriculture, I think. I just love to follow these kids to know what they're doing today. You know, I, I often wondered, why don't we follow these kids that won those scholarships that were kings and queens or royalty winners or management winners or, and follow them to see what they've done? And then, you know, tell these young people what they've accomplished so they can see I could do that too. You know, when I was a kid growing up, they could say, uh, people made fun of me having rabbits. But I always tell people this. The people in LaPorte, Indiana made fun of me for having rabbits still live in LaPorte, Indiana. <laughs> Where do I live? Exactly. You know, you're not shoveling. Said, you're not shoveling I've been snow. All over this country, and you know, been able to you know go over to Europe because of rabbits. So they're in Laporte, Indiana. Absolutely. And Laporte, Indiana is a good town, but it's a good place to be from. That's <laughs> what I say about El Dorado, Kansas, all the time. <laughs> there you go. Look what, look what rabbits have done for each one of you. Yeah. You, know, you can tell a similar story. And and by the way, we're th- the travel we, that you've done with rabbits and the people that you met, and the things that you learned. Oh my gosh, we we Brian had talked and I talked on a previous episode about royalty and what it meant to us as kids. She was the 1997 ARBA queen. I was the 2001 ARBA king, and I believe we are also in the present company of another ARBA king. Doc, when was that? 1971. And was it New Mexico? Albuquerque, New Mexico. Yeah. Albuquerque, New Mexico. You never forget that year, cool will stuff. you? Nope, never forget that trip or that year. The queen was Jeannie, uh, Jenny Dubikowski. She was from Colorado. <laughs> and we only had king and queen back then. We didn't have the breakdown of age. So that was uh, quite a testimony. Oh, wow. Pretty close. So, the year before was my first ARBA convention at Syracuse, New York. That was a good trip, too. Bobby Whitman won king at that one. I competed, but that was my first time out. And Bobby was, you know, he was all ready to go with his briefcase and look sharp and everything else. He was ready to win. Pretty cool. I beat him in the judging contest, though. <laughs> and, he, so, and, he, and he stuck around. I mean, he, he wrote. He stuck around. He was through the whole, his whole life he had rabbits. Yeah. So. Served on the board and then wrote the history of the domestic board, rabbit. Responsible for a lot of rabbit history. Heck yeah. Antiquities with rabbits and such. You bet. Imported yeah. some rabbits, so. Yeah, yeah. he was behind the yeah, development we... of the Oto breed. Um, and I think a couple of others. But he oh. was the one that got the Otos through. Yep, he yeah. was. The Blanc de Hothops. Yep. Yep. Pretty cool. I remember he was the he was the main push behind that breed, as I recall. Yeah. So back in the eighties, right? Yep. Because you know he was, I think he was probably still in high school, maybe a year out. But I I saw him for the first time, and he was all dressed up, and he had a briefcase. And what kind of high school student carries around a briefcase in nineteen seventy? 
you know, maybe not, but, uh, you know, he, he had the, uh, knowledge because, you know, he won that King contest pretty, pretty handily. So there, there's a, and there's a lot of people, you know, you, both of you have people that influenced you greatly, raising rabbits or gave you that special push to, you know, help you along, drive you harder, make you better at what you do because they had somebody help them. Yep. Talking to him right now. You got it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Scott. This has been like a a tuition free, um, almost a semester for all of us. And I know that there's going to be something in here for the new breeder and for the experienced breeder as well. So thank you for for contributing this to the hobby. I I hope we have a lot of listeners and and people take home a lot of good information to to help in their own programs. So we really appreciate this. Thank you. Yeah, Doc, I, I second that. Thank you for taking the time tonight. Um, you know, this podcast is a new thing. We're hoping it's going to really take off and I can, I can already see future episodes where we have you back on because you are a living textbook and an, uh, an inspiration to so many of us. And, uh, we love, we love your voice and everything you've done our hobby, our industry, our ARBA is a better one because you're in it. Thank you for everything. Anytime I can help, just give yeah. me a shout. Thank right, you Doc. so much. All right. Thanks. You have a great night. We love you. Bye. Bye. Oh my gosh. <laughs> ah, he's he's amazing. Uh, I, I hope I do hope people will listen to this. Um, just a lot of information. I learned a lot just sitting here. I mean, and I I've studied this for a long time, but but I learned a lot. Um, yeah, that's a great one. Incredible guy. Um, all right, so we. <laughs> That's going to be hard to, it's going to be hard to beat that in the yeah. next, um, next segment. Well, we but, can segue uh, into that a little it. bit. Um, we talked earlier about um, in the, the history report about some of the cooping. Alan, I know you've been part of this too, um, setting up coops at convention. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I cannot say that I've actually set them up, but um, <laughs> there's a committee that does. I certainly set up cages and stuff at, at, at rabbit shows we put on out here, you know, the coops for every, every show. Uh, fit in a little white trailer that we haul to all of our CRCS shows. So certainly I've put, uh, put up a number of cages in my yeah. life. Well, I've, uh, I've helped at both of the Wichita conventions and the conventions are so big, of course, you know, around 20,000 animals in the Midwest that we do normally have to hire temporary workers to get that done. I know last year, uh, last time we did this in 2012, I was out helping to set up coops. We had a assembly line running. We had um, volunteers from the next year's convention. They're required to come in and help set up, um, the convention that's going on. Um, and we had some temp workers. We, it was ran like clockwork. It was a long day. We got about 20,000 coops set up in the first day. Um, it was pretty incredible. Intense. It is. Um, so the, the, as ARBA involved evolved, um, and we got more cooping, we did purchase the property in Bloomington that had some storage for some of that coops and for our trailers, um, we have since sold those trailers. Um, it's We found out it's not good for trailers to move like once a year or a little more. <laughs> trailers, trailers need a little more. They're used to, they're made to be on the road and they need a little more use. So we did end up selling our trailers. And like you mentioned before, we now have our own equipment facility. This was um, an incredible donation by another one of our just beloved volunteers, Bob Price from Indiana, donated some of his own land to house this equipment. So we now um, have that equipment in Indiana ready to go. Bob's responsible for managing it, does a fantastic job, um, coordinates all of the setup every year. Um, That was one of the things that allowed us to move into a somewhat smaller facility. Um, As you know, the ARB has just purchased a new facility in Pennsylvania. Um, So we're storing that coop 
uh, that cooping offsite now um, away from the main office. Uh, but one of the things we talk about and, and continues to be a topic is the maintenance of this cooping. Um, a lot of people now, more so than they were 20 or 30 years ago, are using risers in their coops, um, which is good for the animals because it gets them up off the shavings. It helps keep them a little more clean. Most of our rabbits now do live in wire cages, um, so they're not used to living on a solid floor. But some of this is leading to some of the deterioration of the coops. Um, and as you know, we talked a little bit about ammonia in the rabbitry. Some of our convention sites towards the end of the week, they get a little bit ripe. Um, oh, yeah. So that's something that, that we all need to kind of focus on. This equipment belongs to us. It's our investment. And um, keeping those coops clean at least once a day um, during those shows, changing out those shavings and replacing them really helps to make the environment better for the animals, better for us, and to, to keep our equipment in good shape. Well, and, and the other thing, you know, we put these conventions on in, in big cities. These conventions are not put on in a small county fair that's accustomed to agriculture, like Wichita is a great example, where the hotel, the Hyatt, is attached to the showroom. You know, by the end of the convention, as you said, like, it gets pretty rank in there. And that smell begins to permeate down the hallways and into the hotel. And if we want to continue to have conventions, we need to, you know, up our image so that the hotels and convention centers want to have us back. So by cleaning, it actually helps preserve, you know, the next the next generation of, of conventions for all of us. Funny you mentioned Wichita. The first year we had it was in 2003. And for years, the convention center had accused the hotel of like stealing hot air from them. And they were finally able to prove it when the rabbit odor came over with it. <laughs> My God, I didn't know that story. Yeah. That's pretty good. But, but yeah, it's... <laughs> It's a PR move for us. Um, People come to this event. You know, our our conventions, as you know, are free to enter. Anyone is welcome to come look around and, you know, hopefully experience a little bit of the wonder that we all do. Um, But we need to make sure that it's it's very representative of our our industry and that we all do our best to really maintain our animals in a way that promotes, um, you know, good good thoughts and good feelings about agriculture and the breeding and raising of animals. Absolutely. Great advice. There's something for each of us to do. All right, Brian, I think we've come to the conclusion of episode three. What do you I think? think we're good to go. All right, guys, thanks for listening. This is Best in Show again with Alan and Bryony, and uh, we will see you on the next one. And in the meantime, guys, talk rabbits, talk cavies, talk ARBA, talk whatever you're passionate about. If there's anything we can walk away from tonight by listening to Dr. Scott Williamson, it's pursue your passions, make passion, follow your passion, make that part of your your, your career and your and your goal in life. While this podcast would not be possible without the American Rabbit Breeders Association, it does not constitute an official communication of the association. The information, viewpoints, and opinions expressed herein are those of the hosts and our guests and are not endorsed by the ARBA. To learn more about the ARBA, please visit www.arba.net.